What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Greetings, friends. Welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the film review podcast where good taste and bad taste are finally back. Yay! After, after a bit of a delay. Well, not a delay. After a bit of a uh, wonderful vacation. Yeah. For you. For me. I, I was around. Yeah. But you were actually taking a well-deserved rest. I, uh, by the way, my name is William Deviani. I am a film critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a film critic. Tell the listeners about your vacation, William. So, yeah, for the first time in, oh, God, about six years, uh, my partner, M. Lapis Da Silva, and I, we actually took a proper vacation. Not a working vacation, <laughs> not a research trip. We went away for a week. and um, For no other purpose than to get away for a week. Well, which is, in and of itself, a good purpose, it turns out. I have gotten... So wrapped up in work, in my life mm. in general, that um, I forgot that taking a break from work is actually good for work. Yes, You indeed. actually <laughs> need to recharge your batteries. You need to reset yourself. You need to reprioritize. And um, I had the most heavenly seven days, and it was really great, and we had good food, and we slept in, and we watched really old episodes of Doctor Who. And yeah, you met, uh, you met numerous chickens, from what I understand. That's right. So we ended up, uh, thanks in large part to, almost entirely to my mother, uh, we were actually able to go to Maui for uh, a week, which is just unbelievable. Didn't think we'd be able to do it. Um, and it turns out they have a lot of chickens there, just around... <laughs> The way that Los Angeles and New York have pigeons, Maui has chickens. You just you, you get a coffee somewhere and chickens are just walking up to you and be like, and we're like, well, yes, uh, fine. Here's some muffin. I don't know. What do you want? And they, so they want some muffin. That's they, what they want. They do. Uh, they're everywhere. They're delightful. They're uh, very oh, well, shades I, of beautiful. I, I think uh, some people would argue with the delightful part. They're wrong. Uh, they are full of personality and uh, just an absolute treat. Uh, the chickens were one of the very best parts of Maui. Also, the beaches are nice. Uh, we went on something called, if you've never been, uh, it's called the Road to Hana. You've been to Maui, right? Did you take the Road to uh, Hana? I, my, uh, my wife and I went for our honeymoon. That's right. Did you take the Road to Hana? Goodness, no. Okay. <laughs> no, we, we, uh, we, we started to drive on it by mistake and then we turned around. Oh, God. Yeah. No, we, we didn't want to drive the Road to Hana. No, no. We, we wanted, we're, we're a little bit too, uh snottily urbane well it's not about being urbane it's about not wanting to die see what how the road to hana and the way it works is uh the never eat, eastern half of the island i always have to do never eat shredded wheat to remember what difference between <laughs> east and west you just read read yeah. from left to right the word we and you got it i still have to do that in my right. head before i start saying it All so either way i'm gonna have to pause mid-sentence but anyway the the eastern chunk of maui mm. is nowhere near as developed as the western chunk it's actually incredibly tropical and a lot of it's just sort of built into the side of basically a mountain and uh they do have a road the road is kind of one and a half lanes in both directions like so, so if somebody's coming down the other way yeah. one of you has to die before yeah the other can continue you have to cut every time there's a lot of like sharper than right angle turns where they're actually signs saying honk your horn so that people know you're coming. <laughs> uh, there are waterfalls everywhere. It's really, really gorgeous, but it's just an incredibly dangerous. You cannot coast. Mm. You cannot say to yourself, ah, 
uh, what a relaxing, like, no, you have to constantly be on your guard. It's like, it's like a water level in a video game. You have to constantly mm. press B to stay out of like the, the, the electroshock like mm. eels or whatever. It's like, right. it's not really fun, but it's gorgeous. Every 10 minutes you have to stop and you have to take a shot of espresso and a shot of gin. And then you have to keep on going. I don't recommend the gin, and, but yes. And then you get to the top and you have to do an obstacle course. But then, oh, when, once you're there, they have like the freshest fruit imaginable and these incredibly gorgeous uh, locales. And it's really, really pretty. And I told myself I wasn't going to do it because I was afraid we would, you know, die. Uh, but we did it, and what a what a what a what a boost for my confidence. Yeah. Honestly, it was really great. Um, so yeah, anyway, it was a lovely time. Uh, thank you everyone for your patience. Uh, I know we refu- we released fewer podcasts last week than usual as a result of this. Uh, but um, boy, are the batteries recharged, and I'm ready to get back going. So uh, let's talk about what we're going to be doing this week on critically acclaimed. Uh, we are going to be. Reviewing the new and semi-new releases, because we missed a week. Uh, The Northman, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, Pompo the Cinephile, and Hatching. Mm -hmm. And then before we get into that, there's one more thing I want to point out, which is that uh, my partner, I'm Lapis da Silva, uh, they have a new book out. They're part of a new horror anthology called Your Body Is Not Your Body. Uh, And this is a new book from Tenebrous Press, T-E-N-E-B-R-O-U-S Press. It is an anthology from uh, a large number of queer horror authors uh, about uh, horror stories involving queerness and specifically the trans experience. Uh, And it it has been being published to uh, raise awareness and raise money. Uh, to help trans youths in Texas, where which is one of the states where they're basically trying to illegalize mm. being trans, especially for the people who are young. Uh, so it goes to a great cause, and it is currently the number one new release in uh, LGBTQ horror on Amazon. So uh, you can get it on ebook. You can buy a print copy as well. Uh, M. Lapis da Silva has a fantastic new story. I think it's actually one of the first ones in the book, nice. which is always a treat. Um so uh, please check that out if you haven't already. It's now currently available, uh, and a lot of great authors are involved, and it's for a very good cause. So once again, it's called Your Body Is Not Your Body, colon, a new weird horror anthology to benefit trans youth in Texas. And you can get that on a Kindle. You can uh, order a, a hard copy as well. It's all it's all good. Um, so yeah. Or, order a hard copy. You want, you, can. you want a book around, you know? I, I recommend if you can get uh, if you can get a hard copy. Although I think maybe it's only available on Kindle right now on Amazon. But in any case, get well. get it whoever you can get it. Um, anyway, that is that for the news. Uh, unless you count entertainment news. Which, yeah, we don't. Uh, we don't. No, <laughs> we don't do that here. In, in entertainment news, we don't talk about that. But we do review films. Yes, we do. And uh, what do you? Let's talk about uh, the film that uh, the big. The film that f- both fi- of us the, have the film the film <laughs> the big film f- that both of us have seen fji with an umlaut lmm yes it is a new film from director robert eggers who previously brought you the witch and the lighthouse uh, it is a viking epic called the north man where uh, where a bunch of those people live up in the north the, no- the north the northman the norseman um it's yeah, it's about Vikings. Woo! It's uh, it's uh, AD the eight hundreds. 
Oh, by and the way, I, I stood up and applauded in the theater <laughs> when the year had AD in the front like it's supposed to. Mm, not 890 AD. Which no, it was, is like, it was like 895. Other, yeah. It was AD like 895. And I was like, yes! <laughs> Fuck yes! Thank you! Someone actually and, uh, paid attention in history class. This is great. Uh, Robert Eggers and his co-screenwriter Sean uh, wrote this uh, this story based on the ancient Viking tale that uh, is one of the many inspirations for the Hamlet story. Yeah. So it's... Watching this movie, pretty loose. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of inspirations, pretty loose. But there's a but, character uh, named Hamlet. He's named Umleth, but yeah. Close uh, enough. <laughs> he's, he's played by Alexander Skarsgård. When he's a boy, mm-hmm. his father, who's played by Ethan Hawke, uh, insists that he's going to be the next chief of the village. And they have this weird sort of uh, outward bound hallucination taking experience where they take drugs with Willem Dafoe. Uh, and then they started filming. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Uh, joke. Uh, no, they, so they, they start howling and he sort of internalizes this idea that he is the wolf. Uh, and uh, he's going to carry that with him when he witnesses his father get slain by his uncle and his uncle uh, usurps the throne. And also uh, marries his mother. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, he grows up to be a Viking berserker, and he turns into this big, muscular, giant guy. I feel like Alexander Skarsgård is good, but in a role like this, you need a Schwarzenegger. You need somebody well, who's like kind of cartoony. Somebody who's a little bit larger than life, who doesn't seem to fit in reality to make sort of mm. the myth arc of kind of feel a little bit more well, alive. The, there's there's these shots early in the film where he, basically he, uh, you know, his father dies and he vows revenge. And then uh, here's the deal. We see this kid. What is he like? 12, he's 13. Like, he's, he's like 12 years old. Okay. Yeah. And then we cut to, it just says years later, Alexander Skarsgård's 45. <laughs> he got, he got way late. He got distracted mm. for about 40 years. Now, um, <laughs> then, I, I, I looked this up. Uh-huh. Uh, evidently, uh, like Viking berserkers uh-huh. uh, would take a certain kind of like herbal hallucinogen yeah. before they went into battle, which is why they were berserk. It's, yeah. it's where we get the word berserk, like that's named after that substance. Mm-hmm. That's, I think it was called like ber- berserk or something. And, Interesting, uh, okay. Uh, and so it's entirely possible he was just zonked out of his gourd the whole time. Possibly, but either way... And, and we he... get to see him early on, you know, when he's an adult, he's like, dancing in skins around a fire mm-hmm. like they're doing these weird sort of animalistic rituals there's this big one shot take of them like storming a village and him like killing everybody and ripping their throats out with mm-hmm. his bare teeth Arr! and at that point that's when they're trying to sell him as this like big giant hulking Schwarzeneggerian monstrosity mm. of a man uh, and then he puts on a snuggly shirt for most of the rest of the film and I'm like <laughs> no 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 no, leave it off I feel, yeah. keep, keep it keep it larger uh, than life Robert Eggers is notorious for wanting his films to look like they have a little bit of dust on them. He likes sort of vintage-looking mm. movies. He shoots with older cameras and old lenses and He's stuff. also really big uh, on historical accuracy, mm. and that leads to a lot of uh, very, very specific production design, costume design, mm. and other, and other uh, various looks. In fact, the, the look and the filming has such a, a wonderfully, like, muddy aesthetic. It's like, you feel like you're cold and wet in, the, in this movie. Yeah. Uh, that it's incredibly distracting when every actor seems to be like making up their own accent. It would have been <laughs> it would have been nice if they had cast like all Icelandic actors. Yeah, well, they wanted people to actually see it in uh, America. I, I That's why get, you have Nicole Kidman just thrown in there for yeah, funsies. Like Nicole Kidman, Willem Dafoe. There's some really like a well, lot Willem of big Dafoe's, names in Willem this. Dafoe's not in it much, and he's under a lot of makeup. 
Like you're not you'd I'm be, sure he's in be a mask for part of it. You, you'd you would be forgiven if you mm. didn't even realize it was Willem Dafoe. Like Willem yeah. Dafoe is not like I want everyone to know it was me. Like no no, he's willing to disappear. It's, uh yeah. Despite its brutal violence, it's actually pretty arch and arty. I've heard some critics compare it to the Green Knight. Oh, and that no. it's like based on ancient literature and they're trying to no. like stage it in this kind of slow, I a little bit more contemplative actually way. I completely disagree with that comparison. Uh, I, I do as well, although I, I do agree that this is something that's a little bit... It's based on sort of ancient lore. Sure. Classic, uh, classic European lit. Uh, and it is sort of this big budget of... Tr- trying to make, bring sort of like a modern sensibility, I guess, to like this ancient tale. Um, yeah. Trying to make it seem like a little bit more of a, a, a modern take of this fable. Yeah. But at the same time... I kind of wish he had done that more uh, mm-hmm. because this is, uh, it's a revenge story. Yes, it is. He, he wants to get revenge on his he, uncle. He, all of a sudden, he's uh, 45 years old. He remembers, oh, right, revenge. Mm-hmm. So, like, he stows away in a ship full of slaves that are being sold to the man who killed his father. And he's going to impersonate one of them and he's going to, like, destroy him from within. Ha ha. He teams up with another slave by Anya Taylor Joy. Mm-hmm. And, um,. They have schemes, and it's all going to involve like getting involved in their family, whatever like that. Yeah, the, and they have no idea how close I am to them. The, I'm going to destroy them all, and I'm going to un- save my mother from the, uh, this horrible life she's living in. The, the uncle is uh, is named Fjolnir, and uh, he's played by Clays Bang. Who I, oh, that's where I recognized him from. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, he's in everything. Uh, he, like he was in he was Dracula not that long yeah, ago. Last and, year, I saw like. Class bang in three movies, like in three weeks in a row. It's like, yeah. where did this guy come from? Like, he has a long career. He's, yeah, he's a good actor. D- got nothing actor, against him. Uh, just sort of popped up all yeah. of a sudden and everything. Uh, yeah. And this movie, fe- without giving too much away, uh, features a scene that I always wish played out this way in Hamlet, mm. in Shakespeare's version of it, uh, where uh, Hamlet confronts Gertrude. Yeah, that's a very different um, scene in this movie. In this one, yeah, it goes completely differently than you yeah. expect. The problem is, it doesn't really affect the story. No, no. Here's, 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 here's. Okay, let me let me let me try to sum up my because I know a lot of people are really celebrating this film. They think mm. it's great. Um, as, as you can tell by my descriptions, I was a little bit disappointed by this I, one. I'm actually I'm a big uh, Robert Eggers I, fan. Again, I try not to build anticipation up before a movie. Yeah. So if you tell me a movie is great, I'm like, okay, cool. I'll, I'm glad I'll you thought it, it was yeah. great. I'm going to try to see it with as fresh eyes as I can. Even though I liked Robert Eggers' other two movies a lot, especially The Witch, uh, this is its own beast. It's its own entity. So I'm going to try to focus on this film on its own. Um, this is Robert Eggers' Zack Snyder film. <laughs> this is his it's like this a, is his bra- Michael Bay attempt. brazenly violent yeah. ultra masculine kind well, of when you look at uh, ideas are being celebrated when you look movie. at what, what Robert Eggers did with uh, The Witch mm. which is a story about uh, pilgrims in colonial early colonialist America who are too religious for the rest of the pilgrims they're, they're too puritanical <laughs> for the Puritans so they end up living on their own and then driving themselves mad uh, with, with paranoia, with about paranoia, a witch about, that may be living in the woods. Yeah, that or or to. is it paranoia? That is a film that is about has a lot of historical accuracy in it, but it actually has a lot to say about that time period. The Lighthouse is about a uh, uh, I guess it's like turn of the century. Uh, uh, yeah, it's it's like the the, the end of the eighteen hundreds, yeah. and um, it's two two guys who are just lighthouse keepers, and that's mm-hmm. it. And it's them being isolated, and once again tearing themselves to shreds. Uh, mentally and eventually physically as the sort of uh, pent-up machismo yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> kind of destroys I feel, them. I feel like 
the lighthouse was very much an attack on sort of on masculinity. Right. On my, the, you, you get these two guys together and what mm-hmm. do they do? They fill each other's mouths with dirt. My point is this. Uh, the witch is on the surface horror story about family tearing itself apart by paranoia. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's a witch. On the surface, the lighthouse is about two guys going mad in a lighthouse. Maybe there's something supernatural going on. Both of those films have something that the Northman doesn't really have. Which is ambiguity. I, I was going to say a point. Oh, okay. well, yeah, that's <laughs> because it. here's the thing. Here's the deal with the Northman. It's well, it, maybe a point is a little too harsh. It doesn't have any sense of perspective. The Northman is completely entrenched in telling itself. It doesn't appear to be told by a filmmaker who has a distinct point of view on well, what's happening, mm-hmm. other than here's this cool story that I'm going to yeah, tell the, entirely well, I, in its in its own head on its own merits, as self serious as it is with no meaningful commentary on the action yeah, if, or the themes you, um, or anything throughout. And as a result, I don't feel like we needed to be told this. This is actually as shallow and pulpy as not even Conan the Barbarian. Conan the Barbarian, the movie, mm-hmm. the first one anyway, has some real meat on its bones. It actually has some depth to it. This is like knockoff Conan the Barbarian in terms of like the actual amount of uh, sort of insight we get about the material. Uh, I understand. It's just kind of a pulp film. I, I understand that. I, I I don't agree that it's a pulp film, but I agree that there's not a lot of nuance to the story, that, mm. that Robert Eggers isn't interpreting the material. This is based on uh, um, uh, Saxo Grammaticus, was the name of the author who, who brought the story to, right. to the, the modern world, uh, ancient Danish author. And um, if you read some of some of these ancient tales, some of these like bardic fables, as it were, yeah. I haven't read this one specifically, a, but I've read similar stuff. Uh, there, there's actually not much of an interpretation to those tales. Yeah, this is actually which just is why it's an adaptation. A, 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 a beat, you know, sort of a, um, you know, you're, you're sort of picturing yourself around a fire, almost mm-hmm. you know, a very ancient person that sits on a stone and you know, bends your ear about mm-hmm. t- the times of yore and the violence and how you know this. Mm-hmm king came to be and you know what's really important to that audience is the power structure and the family and the, mm-hmm. the drama and the violence the things that now in the modern age are just common tropes of cinema right. so i understand he's trying to get back to basics but i feel like he didn't do it enough mm. uh he either needs, what, you to, need to be, you need to be more primal is what he, you're saying he either needs to be uh like more simple and stripped away and have everything be as pure as possible by having everybody speak icelandic mm-hmm. uh and not try to pulp it up at all or go the opposite way, go the Zack, full Zack Snyder mm-hmm. and just make something completely brazenly uh, stupid for, for <laughs> lack of a better term. It doesn't need to be stupid. It just needs uh, to be a brazenly outre. Like just mm, go, just go absolutely like, and I'm, and I'm think, wild Thinking it, specifically you know? of the film 300 here, which I know is oh, based yeah. on a comic book, but, but even that's 300, based on... Uh, but 300 has a point. It's it a does. fascistic point. But it, it does have a point. It celebrates fascism, and it's about. Uh, if, if you look at the bookend material, it's, in the it's movie, a propaganda. Piece. It's a propaganda. Piece. It, it's, it's supposed the, to serve as propaganda. The story that we are being sold in three hundred is, is being presented, told by one of the characters. It's essentially in the story, warmongering. Yeah. It's here. We look at the greatness of war. I don't get that sense from the Northman that Robert Eggers is telling the story because he has a particular reason to mm. other than to tell it which i guess is fine i'm not saying it, it it's is, incompetent or anything yeah, and, and it just it doesn't I just, his own uh, his own culture he's talking about robert eggers sure. uh, is is of from what i understand is of icelandic descent cool which is cool mm. and listen and on again on that level i guess it's okay but it's a long film mm. it's a frustratingly humorless film and when i say that 
everyone always assumes I mean, uh, oh, I wanted to have jokes. Mm. I wanted to have like funny side characters. I wanted to be like a Marvel Cinematic Universe movie. No. I want human I, beings who have a sense of humor. I want, I want, no, what I want is someone in the film to have some sense of perspective. This is something Shakespeare did a lot, mm. where, uh, you know, like in King Lear, the jester mm. is the outside fool, yeah, of yeah. the action enough that they can comment on it. Han Solo in Star Wars is outside of this really self-serious Luke Skywalker saga enough mm. that he can just have an attitude about it. Uh, a film that I feel is... I would be surprised if Robert Eggers wasn't at least interested in it. And it's certainly a film that inspired Zack Snyder, which is why I brought up that comparison. Uh, Excalibur, which recently talks about mm. on another podcast. Um, that is a film that is absolutely self-serious about the King Arthur legend. That is absolutely over the top and absolutely exulting in this glorious lore mm. uh, of, uh, of the British Isles. Uh, but there's also a character in Merlin who knows when people are full of shit and will tell you he's not breaking the, <laughs> yeah, he's, the not, uh, he's not he's not like breaking the fourth wall or doing Aladdin jokes where like all of a sudden he's doing something contemporary. He just knows the fuck are you doing? Yeah, yeah. you're, you're going to destroy a kingdom over this. What are you doing? <laughs> and I just feel like there's none of that here. There's none of mm. the there's no context here. Uh, and as a result, these characters who get so wrapped up. In such bullshit, it's like okay, so well, and the Amleth character, my my, is, my father was a good slave monger king. Yeah, this the, guy the, is uh, a bad slave monger king the, because uh, he killed my father. I'm like, do you have anything to say about that irony? The Amleth, that you're saying this is there's a meaningful difference. No, what I are think you doing I think it's significant that Amleth is a dumb meathead. Like he's just yeah. a warrior guy. He doesn't have any other skills or any other way of looking at the world. He's not mm. an intelligent character. Yeah. Uh, I think that's why Hamlet is so brilliant. Put in, get this like warmonger kind of role. This guy who has to get yeah. revenge, but give him thoughts and morals. And oh shit, now he doesn't know what to do so because what, that's actually a bad thing to do. So what you're saying is, <clears throat> in Last Action Hero, when they did Hamlet with Arnold Schwarzenegger as Hamlet, mm. it was actually brilliant and not funny. Uh, sure. <laughs> I haven't, you know, I haven't seen uh, uh, Schwarzenegger do Shakespeare. Maybe he'd be good. He'd be a good Caliban in The Tempest, maybe. Maybe. No. Yeah. Yeah, oh, at his age now, he'd be a good Prospero. He was uh, He was uh, in uh, the... There's a scene in The Lost World Jurassic Park mm. where the Tyrannosaurus is, like, rampaging through San Diego, and there's a scene from, like, inside, like, a video store. Yeah. And there's, like, some fake movies in there, and one of them is for King Lear starring Schwarzenegger. That's right. So, yeah. there you go. In that world, he did, mm. uh, he did King Lear, and I guess he was good. Um, <laughs> he's not not the most nuanced actor look uh, so basically what I get out of this is I get this absolutely uh, absolutely sincere I'll give you sincerity is fine but mm. not very thoughtful not very uh, uh, not very potent honestly it's it's so uh, it's, it's, it's desperately trying so hard to be macho that it ends up feeling kind of comedic and it elicited some like nervous mm. laughter sometimes when it was trying to be super serious because I'm like oh come on this is this is just yeah. you're just being silly right now <laughs> does no one appreciate how silly this mm. is once in a while because sometimes it's silly there are a few silly scenes where I think that the tension is broken there's a, a yeah. scene where um, the Vikings are playing Viking rugby and they're essentially yeah. murdering each other on the field that that, that actually that, that, was, that, that was kind and, of funny yeah and the uh, Alexander Skarsgård, Almleth, uh, has yeah. to tackle the actor who played the mountain from uh, Game of Thrones. Oh, I thought he looked familiar. It's just okay, this yeah. gig giant guy. Yeah. Uh, and they should have cast him as Almleth. Sure. This gigantic man. Let's do it. 
ridiculous. Um, uh, who's, who I think is also this, like, I think he's also Icelandic. Uh, yeah. Speaking of Icelandic, um, this is the fourth film ever from uh, Björk as an actress. Yeah, she's in one scene in as scenes. a, as, oh, she's technically in two scenes. Mostly in one scene. Yeah. As a, as a witch and. As a um, blind seer. Yeah. And you know, you know, it's cool. Hmm. Bjork. <laughs> Bjork's cool in this. She yeah, had one scene, but she nails thought, it. She's and, cool. And you know what? She's only been in four movies, and I've only seen three of them. So okay, I wait. Feel... So she was a dancer in the dark, which yeah. she's great in. She was in this. What are mm. the other two? Uh, she was earlier in her career. She was in a film called The Juniper Tree, which is an, an Icelandic film. Oh, I don't know that one. Which I haven't seen. Okay. That's the one I haven't seen. And uh, she was in Matthew Barney's Drawing Restraint Nine, oh which I wrote about on Slash <laughs> Film <laughs> recently because they let me do that kind of thing from time to time. Oh, Slash Film, bless you so much <laughs> for letting, for letting me Whitney write about Drawing Restraint his, Nine and his weird shit. Um, uh, look, look, look up Drawing Restraint Nine. It's this experimental art film that Matthew Barney did. After the crew master cycle. Bjork, Bjork is in the film. That's cool. Mm-hmm. There's some good performances in the film. Uh, some of them are all over the place. It feels like Nicole Kidman's in a slightly different film than a lot of other people yeah, sometimes. Well, and I feel the same way about Anya Taylor-Joy, who plays yeah. uh, co-conspirator slash potential love interest. Uh, Possible witch. Yeah. yeah. It's just like some... like. Uh, like uh, herbal remedies and yeah. like alchemical kinds of things going on. Yeah. Uh, and... I think Anya Taylor, she worked with Robert Eggers on The Witch. She yeah, it was like a big kind of, breakout kind of the role. main yeah. character when she was a teenager. And, uh, yeah, here she is. And I feel like, yeah, she was just directed just be, be witchy. Yeah. Like, that was her only direction. Like, she wasn't given a lot of guidance. She has the of... same accent in this yeah. that she had in The New Mutants, which oh is God, really frustrating. <laughs> like, there's so much, like, potential... Uh, uh, nuance mm. to her character. She actually does have an outsider's perspective, I think, because she's literally been taken from where she lives mm. and brought to this new place. She has none of that to offer. She just is dumped in and she becomes, like, basically uh, uh, a co-conspirator slash love interest for a lot of it. Mm. Um, there's a lot made of how this sort of revenge is a cycle. You know, like, I have to get revenge for mm. my father, but then if I but that kill your family, really then play, you have to get uh... revenge on me. And I'm like okay, we're not actually breaking any cycles here. We're just perpetuating him. And we're not really dealing with the fact that Amleth is not much better than any villain in this play or this movie. Mm. We're well, not really, we don't really seem to be conscious that, of that. That is part way. of this marriage. It is, fair, but it doesn't but, yeah. seem any, but doesn't even, it doesn't even really feel like that much of a tragedy anyway. It feels like at the end they say, well, maybe we broke the cycle. I'm like, I have seen no evidence to support that. Hmm. I see no evidence to support. There's a, there's a, <clears throat> frankly, there's a, there's a, a really, really insipid online theory that people have had mm. thanks to the Big Bang Theory that uh, if Indiana Jones had done nothing in Raiders of the Lost Ark, that everything oh, would have turned out fine. Before, yeah. uh, which is nonsense because if he had done nothing, the uh, the Nazis would have gotten both halves of the amulet. They would have found the Ark faster. Mm-hmm. They would have gotten it to where they needed to go. And uh, they wouldn't have all died in the middle of nowhere where Indiana Jones could have rescued the Ark. They would have died in a place where other people have said, okay, well, we know what they did wrong and then they could weaponize it. So no, that's nonsense. But in the Northmen, where the whole point is we're trying to break free of these horrible cycles of vengeance... I feel as though I don't think that's the point. But well, okay. well, regardless, okay, then fine. We're just the whole point is supposed to indulge in them. Just that this this was the cycle of life back then. I guess, but, but like yeah. my point is this: if the Northmen hadn't done anything, everything probably would would have worked out better. If he actually, had, <laughs> I mean, yeah, he's still a monster. He's doing yeah. these horrible berserker, you know, kill raids. 
No, there's there's but a like, scene early on where they like yeah. lock a bunch of children into a house and set it on fire. Yeah, but they're gonna do that anyway. Right. Like when he leaves, he just he just makes everything fucking worse over here. And like the the movie kind of makes an argument that maybe it's better before he gets there. And I'm like, okay, but are we gonna comment on that? Is are we ever gonna show anyone being the bigger person? No. So what's the point? Like seriously, what's the point? I, I, I look at this and I see this big exaltation of uh, manly bravado. And there's, a, there's an appeal to that. I'm not pretending that there isn't. Mm. I just find it ultimately frustratingly straightforward. Not very thoughtful. And frankly, this feels like any kind of empty summer blockbuster just made with more of an art house aesthetic by a filmmaker who really knows what they're doing. Mm. So I'm I'm yeah it's just kind of like a oh I I, I agree I yeah. think I think it is disappointingly straightforward I wasn't yeah. so put off by that uh, but I was yeah. disappointed yeah um the idea that uh this is part of their lives and that this is a cycle that's going to continue this cycle of revenge and yeah. death and violence against one another is just sort of par for the course isn't something that we get to see sort of play out in a larger context uh, we don't get to see. Uh, Again, to I know it's unfair to compare it to Hamlet, but it's also fair because it's the same story. Well, it's like when they made that uh, movie in the heart of the sea about the story that inspired Moby Dick. Yeah. You have to compare it because we know what happens exactly. in Moby Dick, so, and uh, Moby Dick is the better uh, version of that story. A big part of Hamlet is that Hamlet is supposed to get revenge on Claudius and take his rightful spot on the throne yeah. so he can sort of face off against Fortinbras, the Norwegian king. That's the idea, Who's, yeah. who's charging through Denmark at the time and ends up yeah. just taking over. He's like the ticking dead. clock yeah, yeah, in, the, like in the... This outside yeah. force. Uh, you don't see that too many stage versions they cut out a lot of the Fortinbras stuff yeah the, um, yeah it's, 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 it's easy bit, to cut out it's it's a big part of the play especially if you've seen yeah. uh, Brana's version where he actually includes it but much like um, Rosengrant's and Guildenstern they're easy to cut out if you don't mind losing the themes of the, of the play right uh, you know? but this idea that Hamlet's actions are going to have larger repercussions in the world yeah. uh, is a big part of that play that uh, it's not just that he's refusing to play his role as this character in a play, he's also not being a responsible politician. Mm -hmm. And I think a big part of uh, the full version of Hamlet is that Claudius, although he's a, a murderer and he usurped the throne, mm -hmm. is a good politician. Yeah. And that's kind of what good politicians do. They murder each other off. Mm -hmm. There's none of that sense in the Northmen, that what yeah. this character is doing is going to have any larger repercussions other than what it means to him personally. Right, which leaves and it feeling... And he's such a shallow character. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it ends up feeling kind of... Which leaves it feeling kind of pulpy to me. It ends up feeling a little bit like um, that one Ralph Bakshi movie he made with Frank Frazetta, Fire and Ice. I haven't seen Fire which and Ice, is, but I, yeah, I know yeah, what, it's, what it's you're talking about. basically hunky Tarzan-type dude teams up with hunky barbarian type dude to save scantily clad lady from frost wizard. And that's kind of it. Even Ralph Bakshi admits and, that movie's and, really shallow. And, but and, at least that got movie... You, got yourself a movie there. But like at least... But he did it so he could work with the brilliant Frank Frazetta, who's one of the great uh, uh, pulp artists of all time. Uh, and um, it, it's kind of unapologetically shallow. Mm. Like at least that one is just like, we're not pretending we're more than we are. Here, it's so self-serious and it's so melodramatic and it's got so many like big images and so many huge set pieces about religion and... Uh, um, family and legacy that when at the end of the day you realize we didn't really get much out of it it kind of feels like maybe this should have been 90 minutes <laughs> instead of two hours and 20. like maybe this is maybe this didn't need to be this giant thing maybe mm -hmm. this is like a maybe it could have been a little punchier and we would have gotten away with mm -hmm. it better 
But um, anyway, not a huge fan. Not a huge fan. But tell me about a movie. I didn't get a chance to see this because I was I was away. Uh-huh. Tell me about The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, which I keep wanting to call a heartbreaking work of staggering genius. Uh, also by Ann Eggers. So there's oh, a little, little bit more of a, a con- confusion there. Not Robert Eggers, though. Different guy. David Eggers. Yeah. Um, uh, that that's that was like if if you were in your twenties mm. in like the early two thousands, you read that book. Yeah. That was really important. I uh, actually, I guess I was the one who didn't. Okay, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> yeah, it was it was being spread around. It was it was uh, nominated for a Pulitzer, but it didn't win. Uh, yeah. And it's a, a true story about this guy who was uh, lost both of his parents very rapidly to cancer, and how he, uh, as a young man, had to uh, raise his brother and sort of survive as a young man and mm. just sort of his experiences. Um, anyway, that's neither here nor there. This is a film, uh, which is, it's a concept that's been done numerous times in cinema in the past, where we're going to make a fake, uh, autobiography of a living actor who is playing themselves. Yeah. That happened a lot, uh, but when they do, it's fun. W.C. Yeah, um, Fields did that. Um, what was it called? Never Give a Sucker an Even Break. Oh, I right. think that's a fun one. Uh, yeah. In recent year, I, I recalled uh, being John Malkovich, sure. uh, which is a little bit more of a surreal thing, yeah, but very uh, fanciful, a little yeah. bit more directly. It's a lot like JCVD, which oh, yeah. is about Jean-Claude Van Damme, and sort of, he plays himself in that, but he also, it's a fictionalized version where he's part of like this bank heist, and now he has to play the action hero in a bank heist, but he's playing himself. Did you ever see uh, that uh, Paul Giamatti one where he played himself? Oh yeah, Cold like, Soul. Where like, they remove his soul and it looks mm. like a chickpea. Yeah, they, they, I don't remember this, anything else happening. Honestly, the uh, the premise of that movie is this: it's this fantasy concept. You can go to this clinic and they'll remove your soul and they store it in a jar, and everybody's soul looks different. It, like his looks like a chickpea. Sometimes yeah. they look like liquid. You know, whatever it is, like the new fat. And, uh, you know, like yeah. And he feels that in order to, if he loses his soul, he'll be a better actor. He can be a little bit more pliable. He can pretend to be others without his own the weight mm. of his own soul. Uh, and then he, he says, I, well, I can't do that anymore. I want my soul back. But they give him somebody else's. And that's the yeah. conceit of that movie. Yeah. But th- they give him, like, the soul of, like, this, uh, this, like, suffering mother from Russia who raised orphans. It was, like, like yeah. a very big soul compared to his. It's like, I can't handle that anymore. Yeah. Um, uh, also, uh, really, really close to, uh, to this Nicolas Cage movie is My Name is Bruce, which was the ah. Bruce Campbell movie. Which he wrote, and I think he also directed. I think he directed it too, um, yeah. Where he goes to like a small town and they confuse him for his character in the Evil Dead movies and he has to fight well, monsters. Uh, they don't confuse him, just he's Bruce Campbell, but they assume that he has monster fighting skills. Just okay. because of uh, the, the nature of Bruce Campbell's fandom. That's the way people okay. react to him in public. So sure. he wrote himself that way at, in this movie. But in that movie, he plays sort of, sort of like a, in all of these movies, in fact, uh, these actors play sort of like, sad beaten down versions of themselves yeah uh like kind of kind of bastard versions of themselves mm-hmm. kind of uh that's true that kind is of weird egotistical to... versions of themselves it is weird that almost all of those examples even the wc fields one i mm-hmm. i gave you an example of they're never happy yeah they're never like even in last action i guess last action here is the one exception but like even the, the but fantasy he's not, version he's of not playing one. schwarzenegger for like that. a he's brief playing... second he is i, I like, guess yeah, so but yeah, yeah. It's, that's not about the life of arnold schwarzenegger yeah, i guess not i guess it's um, not an example but yeah no it's weird but yeah in this one uh nicholas cage playing himself uh is now like struggling mm-hmm. uh first scene in the movie he's having lunch with uh, david gordon green who plays himself oh, he's okay. like hey i'm on audition i want to be in your movie can i read for you no you don't need to read for me well i'm gonna do it anyway and he gives a speech out in public uh, he's overacting like crazy. Mm-hmm. He's playing the version of a Nicolas Cage that people popular assume is perception yeah. has 
like has of Nicolas Cage that he's mm. sort of this irresponsible, crazy, wild man kind of a guy. Because well, he plays crazy characters a lot. Well, it's almost like when... Uh, but he also mo- plays very subdued characters a lot. It's also so. like that movie uh, Free Enterprise, mm. where, oh, yeah. where William Shatner, yeah, plays, Shatner himself, plays himself, but, he, but William Shatner, and to be fair, very game, uh-huh. plays himself as a bad actor. Mm. Shatner can be a good actor if he wants to. He doesn't always want okay. to. The joke in that movie is that Shatner, like, he gets the attention of these two, like, 20-something Trekkie guys... And he's like, I, I want to do a movie. He's like, oh, heck, we're, we're kind of getting on our feet. We could produce your movie, William Shatner. We're big fans of yours. Mm-hmm. He says, okay, I want to do a six-hour musical version of Julius Caesar, and I'll play all the parts. And they're like, what? He's <laughs> <laughs> like, no, it's a great idea. And he, he just talks about the stupid Julius Caesar project throughout mm-hmm. the entire thing. At the end, he raps yeah. uh, Brutus' speech. <laughs> yeah. I, I like Free Enterprise a lot. I like, it's, a cute, it's a cute mm-hmm. film. I got nothing against him. My point is this. He's willing to play up this idea of yeah. himself and, uh, rather and than uh, actually try to accurately represent yeah, who he really is. This, this popular idea of who Nicolas Cage is has sort of grown up over the course of the last decade uh, that he had a lot of financial troubles uh, kind of fed into this because mm-hmm. yeah, he, he, he made a lot of very extravagant purchases. Mm-hmm. Uh, he bought, you know, castles and villas. He uh, bought uh, a dinosaur skull mm-hmm. at one point. Action comics. Uh, number one, action comics. Number one, uh, which, the, he then, which he eventually sold. And I heard he didn't want to, and that kind of broke my heart a little yeah. bit. Yeah, well, and he also, he was going to play Superman in, in that one project. Yeah. That uh, he actually didn't get Would've to do. Would have been weird. Uh, the dinosaur skull uh, was, he gave back. It ah. turns out it was uh, stolen from the Macedonian government and ah. given to the auction house. So he bought it, he paid the auction house, and then they said, wait a minute, that's not theirs to sell. So he was, he was... Just took a bath on it and gave it back. Yeah, it's just like, yeah. he said, okay, I'll, I'll give it back, and the auction house can give me my money back, and the auction house didn't do that. Uh, so he kind of got stiffed in that. That sucks. He's still... Good, for him, a, for, good for him for yeah. doing the right thing. He still bought a dinosaur skull, though, so yeah, that's I, that's a little bit extravagant. I, 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 I but might you know what? do the same thing. Yeah, I was about to say... That's he, not something I wouldn't if, do. If I was a millionaire movie star, I would want to buy some extravagant things. I mean, what's the point if you don't yeah. if you don't get to enjoy it once in a while? Exactly. You, know, you want to do a couple of weird things, It's like, okay, right? here's my home. It's nice and modest. What's in the basement? 1985 arcade. Yeah! 50 pinball machines. you got to have at least yeah. one thing. If you're a millionaire, listen, especially... If, especially if you had to work for it. Uh-huh. Not if you grew up with it and you had everything handed to you in a silver platter, which, let's be honest, some people do. Not many, but that's mm. the whole point. Well, uh, they, but if you like, Cage kind of did because well, it's part of a legacy. He's but, from yeah. the Coppola's, but they, didn't, they weren't famous. They weren't super rich the whole time. No, well, no. But, uh, but in any case, especially if you worked really, really hard for it, you should get something weird. You should get it. You should get <laughs> your yeah. own car with a jacuzzi mm. in the back. You get one thing, and, uh, right? Just one. And so, on. someone once asked him in an interview, what would you call your... Because he, he does have a, a pretty mm. unique acting style. Yeah. Uh, and somebody said, what what are you? What kind of an actor are you? And he said, he came up with the phrase nouveau shamanic. Yeah. Uh, and he's explained what that means. Nouveau yeah. is, a, it's a, like a new version of a shamanism. Yeah. Like he's using... Losing these old, yourself. Yeah, losing yeah. yourself in sort of these roles. Nouveau shamanic. Mm. It actually makes perfect sense. It just sounds a little bit kooky. Well, it's, um, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a name, but like... It's, and but no, you look at like... But he takes his craft seriously. Well, Nicolas Cage can underplay. Like if you look at like the way he plays in the movie Pig, which is one of his best performances and mm. it came out last year, that's not a nouveau shamanic role or at the very least it's not outwardly so. Mm. It's actually very understated. Yeah. But then you look at something and I will, I will go to bat, by the way, for Nicolas Cage's performance in Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance. Not the first one. <laughs> the first one is bad. Uh-huh. The second one, he is on another level of weird. Mm. He is, he's not just playing, 
yeah, I'm a tortured soul, and sometimes I turn into a demon. He's playing a guy who is constantly physically fighting. It's like it's like a demon it's like, that's trying to burst out through his skin. Imagine yeah. a werewolf movie where literally every second you were like on the verge of transformation. Hmm. Like that's how he plays that role. I kind of love it actually. Do, I really think he's fun in that. Do movie. you remember that like Weasley sidekick character from Bordello of Blood? It's like you, the, guy, the like really twitchy guy was like eating raw meat. And he's like, you're uh. gonna get so much good sex. Like, like that guy's like, like he looks like he's about to like set himself on fire with his own mind. <laughs> that actor was so great. I need to look that guy up. Uh, okay. Bordello of Blood is is shit, but I yes, love it. it. I, I, yes, it's a, it it's a piece of shit that I love. Like, I okay. just I, I can't apologize for it. It's just something I've drawn. But every to. once in a while, you see this like over the top performance, and you realize mm. that is not bad acting. That is good acting. It's just big That's acting. Just, like yeah. for example, uh, people pointed this out. Uh, Toshiro Mifune, one of the great actors, um, his performance in Seven Samurai is very broad. He, he because he's playing a lot yeah. because he's playing a guy who is overcompensating for the fact mm. that he feels like he's nobody. Yeah. So he plays it very, very big. But once you actually get to know the character, you realize there's a reason he's acting that way. Mm. It makes sense to, I'm in to, the right context. To share him one of the best actors ever. By Period. The way. Um, watch the film. I live in fear at mm. some point. He, he made that one with Kurosawa and he, mm. he was like 35. He played a 75 year old man without makeup and he's <laughs> completely convincing. Oh my God. Uh, anyway, uh, anyway. Back, to, back to Nicolas Cage. Yeah. Um, in in uh, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, he plays this sort of egotistical version of himself. He's also haunted by a young version of himself. Hmm. And there's a, a digitally de-aged Nicolas Cage in the scene with him. Convincing? Sort of appears-ish. Uh, okay. Um, and this character, Nicky Cage, mm-hmm. uh, is the one who's constantly pushing him to be a movie star, whereas he is a little bit more content to be an actor. Right. And those are two different things. Uh, he also in, in the fictionalized version of this movie, uh, is on the outs with his wife and his teenage daughter, uh, fictional characters. He actually doesn't have this wife and this daughter. Right. He does have a wife and child, but not these. Uh, his teenage daughter is completely embarrassed by him and he is constantly trying to show her his favorite movies and turn her into a Nicolas Cage Jr. And she resents that. And, uh, and her mom also resents that. Okay. Uh, he can't get any work. In order to make a lot of money, he's d- agreed to take a job from his agent, played by Neil Patrick Harris, mm. another actor who did the same shtick in uh, the Harold and Kumar movies. Oh, he did, didn't he? Yeah. Um, again, playing this like broad, evil version of himself in those yeah. movies. Uh, says you you can take this job. It pays a lot of money. You have to spend the weekend at like the private villa in Spain mm. with this kind of sketchy, perhaps criminal warlord type of a guy. Mm-hmm. Who is just a big fan of yours, and he wants you to go to his birthday party. It's like when Dennis Rodman went to North Korea; they just they were just a big fan of Dennis Rodman. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, He played uh, so this guy Javi. He's played by Pedro Pascal. He's he's going to pay Nicolas Cage a million dollars to hang out with him at his birthday party, and it turns out he's the world's biggest Nicolas Cage fan. And we learn over the course of the movie his his three favorite movies, and he's he's very upfront about the first two. He really loves Face Off. That's his favorite movie. Okay. Second favorite movie, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. It's a running gag in the movie. They talk about that one a lot. And he's very coy about the third one. And after they drink a lot and they take some drugs and they have a few more adventures, it's okay, you gotta tell me your third favorite movie. It's Paddington 2. (laughs) So they watch Paddington 2, and Nicolas Cage agrees that Paddington 2 is a a brilliant work of genius. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just say it. Paddington Two is great. I got nothing against Paddington Two. I'm, <laughs> like not, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna slag on. I, I, I I'm not gonna that, be mean to Paddington Two right I love now. That Paddington Two has itself taken off into the sort of like yeah. mythic lore of cinema. Yeah. But I'm just gonna say this, and I know weird. I know where this is gonna sound. 
I still think Paddington 1 is better. <laughs> like, they're both wonderful, right? Mm. It's just like it's just this sort of thing where it's like it's like when everyone says Troll Two mm. is the worst movie ever made. You know, Troll One sucks Troll 1 too, is also right? Quite but bad. very entertainingly bad. <laughs> I feel that I just feel like Paddington One is just a kind of a better cohesive film. I, I Paddington like, Two is very sweet. I like it's Paddington very Two better. I like the prison stuff in Paddington Two. The prison like, stuff is glorious in I Paddington like, Two. I like, I like Hugh Grant in Paddington Two, and. Um, yeah. There's less of the, like, Bear cleans his ears with a toothbrush stuff. And... Ordinarily, I would not be for that, but <laughs> I actually think too. they get away with it in Paddington 1. Uh, right. Yeah, I, I was grossed out by the digital ear Bear earwax scene. Well, that you were supposed to be, so I think it's fine. Come it wasn't, the, the director wasn't just like, I know what Whitney Seibold will love. He'll be like, hmm, I want to, that makes me, that makes my appetite uh, swell. I'm going to go get a snack. Uh, when Nicolas Cage arrives to uh, spend the weekend with Javi, uh, wouldn't you know it, there are CIA agents at the airport and they know that he's going to this mansion. Mm-hmm. They they know something, that Pedro Pascal is up to something. Mm-hmm. So they, they track Nicolas Cage and the, uh, the CIA agents are played by Tiffany Haddish and Ike Barinholtz. Okay. Uh, so comedy characters right other uh, tiffany haddish and ike Barinholtz are fine actors but they're comedians yeah uh so uh they eventually uh manage to get a hold of nicholas cage and they ask you have to start spying on this guy so he starts doing like spy stuff you have to like sneak around during parties and replace uh microfilms and not microfilms, okay but, so you know, now computer it's, discs and stuff so now it's and the... it becomes a little bit more of an action picture and eventually there's going to be like shootouts and chases where nicholas cage is Working for the CIA. And okay, now it just de- sounds determining like... Determining what his relationship with Javi is going to be. Now it just sounds like the movie The Interview. A, a little bit, with I James suppose. With James Franco, yeah. where like, they go to North Korea. They, they're buddy buddies with this guy who like wants to meet him because he's a huge fan. Mm. They become a huge fan. He actually, like, James Franco starts thinking this guy's actually really cool. Mm. And then it all descends into action movie madness at the end. Same thing. Yeah. Same thing? Same okay. Shit. Um, well, it's, it's a format. There is a really funny. It's a comedy film. There's a really funny scene where uh, they take acid together just as a bonding <laughs> exercise, and they're they are just sort of sitting uh, talking about you know what, what's going on. We're taking acid. I'm getting really paranoid. There's no like special effects or anything. We just get to see how foolishly they're behaving. Uh-huh. And they look over at these two guys looking at them. Oh God, they're looking at us. And they go like running down hallway. Oh no, they're gonna chase it. Like they're so paranoid. Yeah. They come to this wall and they have to scale it to get away. And they say, no, you have to leave me behind. It's this big dramatic thing. <laughs> and then they just sort of walk away. Oh, I guess we didn't need to climb that wall. <laughs> I guess they're just sober up. That's a good moment. It's a good yeah. bonding moment. It's a good comedy moment. Both Pedro Pascal and Nicolas Cage are really there for that scene. By the time it gets to the action stuff, it's really cheap. It's really kind of dull. It's not entirely entertaining. Mm-hmm. This is a trifle of a movie. Like, Nicolas Cage is just playing around. Mm. He's not making any kind of real serious comments on his own career. It's not even adding to the Nick Cage myth. It's just sort of commenting that it exists. Uh, well, it's a bit of a missed and, opportunity. Yeah, yeah, like... You'd think there would be a way for, like, there's a scene in JCVD oh, yeah. where uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme turns to the camera and gives a monologue. About That's like the end of, his, of the movie. It's a yeah, really long monologue this, about like, his, his whole pl- career his and legacy. Yeah. In, in popular culture. And it's Nicolas really Cage doesn't scene. have a moment like that in this. He's just mm. sort of playing around. Uh, and that's fine. Nicolas Cage can play all he wants. And he's mm. played playful roles. He's played very serious roles. He's played a lot of action roles. His action movies are brought up more often than you know, Joe or pig. Did you ever watch a uh, Brooklyn nine, nine? No, never saw it. There's a, uh, uh, Andy Samberg's character is a huge Nicholas Cage fan. And there's mm-hmm. a whole part where he has to go to the mattresses with his boss's husband, okay. who is uh very, uh, effete, 
mm. high art, you know, uh, snooty opera type guy. Mm. And um, to entertain them, he's brought every Nicolas Cage movie. And it, it, watching Gone in 60 Seconds is just like killing this guy's soul. <laughs> and then at the end, when they manage to like save the day and the guy actually like manages to do so by remembering something Nicolas Cage did and like, mm-hmm. I don't know, Connor or whatever like that. It's like, you were paying attention. He's like, yeah, well, like, you know, there's bound to have been something good in there. And it's just like, yeah, we didn't even get to Captain Crowley's Mandolin. There was a movie about a mandolin. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you probably would have also liked leaving Las Vegas. He worked with Mike Figgis. <laughs> like he never showed him any of the good stuff. Yeah. He only showed him this cheesy action stuff. Uh, I, I am a Nicolas Cage fan. I, I, do. I, I do admire like how wild he can get. He's really great. I think uh, his craziest role might be... Um, Vampire's Kiss. Well, I was going to say uh, Bad Lieutenant. Uh, Bad Lieutenant Porter that's up there. is pretty good. The, that's the definitely film he made with Herzog, uh, yeah. that, that's a pretty crazy flick. Vampire's Kiss is the one where he actually eats a cockroach. That's, that's For commi- real. That's commitment. He ate yeah. a real cockroach on camera. You can see yeah. how grossed out he is by it, too. Yeah. <laughs> that's gross. Mm. Um, mm. Uh, great actor. So it's a, but, so it's, but, but it's a fun, though. But it's, it's okay. It's, it's, it's fun. Like, it's fun, but it's like kind of light and forgettable and really yeah. cheap. And not, not you know, it, it it's something to just sort of like waste your time mm. rather than bring anything serious to the conversation about acting or the craft or Hollywood or Nicolas Cage. It's interesting. I wish it had gone a little further. I wish it had a little bit more of a comment, but it's still entertaining. It's interesting that we've had like two movies. One is like kind of this like big art house film from a celebrated art house filmmaker. And mm-hmm. one is more of a trifle about sort of behind the scenes Hollywood. And then the next film we're going to review is a film about those things. Okay. It's called Pompo the Cinephile. Hooray, we it, got a theme. That's true. And actually, it's an interesting film because it's actually, whereas those two films, I feel like, I mean, you, it sounds like, you know, uh, Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent seems like it just wasn't about very much at the end of the day and mm. kind of felt the same way about The Northman. Uh, Pompo is about trying to make something meaningful out of All right. often crap. Uh, Pompo is the name of a uh, movie producer in Nyaliwood. Meowlywood. No, Nyaliwood, which oh, is oh, which, which is n- Japanese Hollywood. for meow. Meow. Oh, okay. So in this slightly uh, fictionalized this version a, of a, Hollywood. Is that a Japanese picture? Yeah, it's an anime film. Oh, okay. Uh, in this slightly fictionalized version of Hollywood, where like instead of having stars on the Walk of Fame, they're like cats, like cat mm-hmm. heads. It's like basically just... See, see, it's kind of like... It's not the Academy Awards. They're the Nya Academy Awards. We, we, I, everyone I got, on everyone on board with this? Everyone a... see the the subtle joke? <laughs> uh, Pompo is the name of a young movie producer. She is, uh, uh, I think, it's like her grandfather was like one of the greatest filmmakers in the world, and uh, now she is running a studio. And she's like a young corman. Everything she makes is B movie schlock, but everything she makes is good, and everything she makes makes money. She has a new script that she has written that is actually a thoughtful, serious drama about a music conductor who finds his muse in the Swiss Alps. And one thing I appreciate about the film is that there's a scene in the movie where they admit it's a really trite premise. But, you know, once you actually read it, it's pretty good. 
which gives you a lot of freedom to make like a movie within a movie not look that good, but just trust us if you watched it, it would win you over, mm-hmm. which is a clever play, I think, because the movie within a movie never looks good. <laughs> never, they, yeah. never, they never look like a good movie. It's always that's I don't know. Sometimes it's a joke. Well, the, the, sometimes uh, it's just a way to differentiate between the actual movie you're watching say and the that, fake movie. That, that needs to be done because you're watching a film and yeah. a filmmaker can only make a film so many ways. So they yeah. kind of do it like really over the top. Well, you also don't want Somebody, the audience uh, to get more excited to see the fake film than the actual film th- you're watching. I think it was Luke Y. Thompson uh, recently pointed out that the fake movie at the end of the movie, The Player, mm-hmm. the one that was supposed to be like the Hollywood sellout ending, the big mm-hmm. stupid cheesy movie, yeah. looks way better than a lot of the mainstream movies we have now. <laughs> He's not wrong. He's not wrong. Um, like, the, the joke in, in the movie was, oh, we always cast movie stars, and we have big, stupid, artificial happy endings on these big dramas. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I would kill for that now. <laughs> kill for that fake thing at the end of the player. Uh, but anyway, the, the, the idea of Papa the Cinephile is uh, she's written a, 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 a real drama, like a okay. serious drama. Uh, and she wants her assistant. It's called, it's called Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? It's, it's called. Uh, it's called like the the maestro, basically. Oh, yeah. um, and uh, she wants her a personal assistant, who she hired because she saw a lot of uh, potential in him, to direct it. It'll be his first feature. And she's got like an old classic actor who's like got, like Daniel D. Lewis has come out of retirement for it, uh-huh. and they found a young ingenue who's making their first movie, and she's gonna make it this big deal. Mm. Um, and um, the first half of the movie is. She sees talented people and she gives them a shot. And it's this whole big fantasy about she has oh, we get to talent make talents where she can uh... she can recognize talent in others, which is a huge thing. This is a huge part of being a producer, which is fair. Mm. You have to recognize who has talent and who will work well with with each other. That's a massive part of it. First half of this movie is just fantasy fulfillment, everything coming together, and it's great. The second half of the movie is okay. We have seventy two hours of footage. Edit that shit together. I'll be back in a couple of weeks. And now the guy's just like, the fuck do I do now? <laughs> the second half of the movie is literally all about kill your darlings. Okay. He's so in love with everything that he's done, he can't admit to himself that you don't need it. Hmm. And this is actually a great lesson for every filmmaker to learn, really every artist. Uh, it, especially in film, especially in screenwriting in particular. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah. Well, because the thing is, when you make a movie, you shoot every single thing on the page, sometimes more. Uh, you shoot from different angles and when they say something like, oh yeah, the first cut of, I don't know, Doctor Strange was like five hours long. Mm. They don't mean that's the director's cut. What they mean that's, is... That's all the rough footage. That means yeah. when you just take literally everything you shot and put it into the movie, that's how long it would be edited and, together. And that's when they start editing to make and, the movie. <laughs> because that is going to be a shitty movie most of the time. You need to actually have things like pacing. You need to understand when movie, when scenes and dialogue and sometimes whole characters and subplots are redundant or distractions. And this guy can't bring himself to, to do that. He can't figure it out. Mm. So that's why we call it Kill Your Darlings. The idea is sometimes in order to make the movie or the novel or whatever you're doing better, you have to edit out something you really like from it. Maybe even the reason you did it in the first place is the thing that's holding it all back. And once you remove that, all of a sudden the movie is better. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, the point of Pompo the Cinephile is not to be so goddamn precious about your filmmaking because you'll make better films that way. And also, as Pompo says, every movie should be 90 minutes long. 
<laughs> that's a that's actually a major point of the film. Oh, that's great. And I like and I like that they don't even say because like as like some kind of old school way, Pompo is actually like, listen, it's a twenty it's a twenty first fucking century. People are busy. Making a movie longer than that is rude. <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of appreciate that we we have here is a film that actually is on one hand the kind of like fantasy wish fulfillment Hollywood story about being you know having someone notice your talent and there's some there's a place for that. It's very sweet. Hmm. But the second half is actually kind of rich, thoughtful film criticism about why it's important sometimes that movies not be four and a half hours long. Uh-huh. Why sometimes it's important to just tell the fucking story, the Northman. Uh, and um, I appreciated that. Um, ironically, for a movie that is itself 90 minutes, by the way, brava for commitment. <laughs> brava. Uh Still feels a little padded. Oh, well, <laughs> it feels like they actually had to get, get it up to ninety. I know, right? So there's this like <clears throat> bit towards the end where like um, Papa was cut his film down, but even then he realizes it's like missing something, and they need to do reshoots. Mm-hmm. You're a major productions company. You you budget for reshoots. Yeah. That's what you do. It's weird that this is all this behind the scenes stuff, and we're making a big deal about having to raise money for reshoots, and we have to have this whole story about this banker who's having a crisis of faith, and will he or won't he help them? get their budget and I'm just like you know I don't need any of that at all <laughs> this was a short you guys this well it's, this could have been 80 minutes I feel pretty pretty tightly um but it's a sweet film I, I don't love it but it's definitely if you love anime definitely worth a shot and it's an interesting film about filmmaking not amazing but at least it actually tackles some elements of filmmaking that other movies don't really talk about so um I, I like it I don't love it but a bang and then uh, the last movie that we're reviewing is Hatching. Uh, let's bring this back around to Scandinavia. Woo! Uh, this is a Finnish film um, from uh, a director named... Uh, I just, you can do oh, it. I just had her name in front of me. I believe uh, you. Hun- Hanna Bergholm is her name. Cool. And, uh, yeah, this is a uh, about a Finnish family. Uh, mother, father, son, daughter. And they everything in their everything in their existence is white. The buildings are white. Their clothes are white. They're very white. They're very blonde. Uh, and uh, the teenage girl, she's like maybe thirteen, uh, is uh, trying to become a gymnast, but she's not good enough for mother. Mother's a mm. little bit of a perfectionist. Uh, her mother also has a little bit of a dark streak. Uh, it, Early in the movie, something uh, that is not white invades their, infiltrates their space. A crow gets inside. Mm. Uh, the the color is used to to great effect, and uh, the mother catches it, and breaks its neck. Yeah. Uh, this will inspire the the teenage girl to go out into the woods later on, uh, and when she sees an injured crow, uh, she kills it with a rock. She sees that it's suffering because it, it's it's injured, it's dying. Well, I mean, yeah, yeah it's still sad. Yeah, and so she, she I can of, mourn. So she kind of, she uh, yeah, has this moment to like, I'm going to do what my mother mother would want me to do. So she crushes it with a rock and then notices that it has an egg. Mm. It was, it was, and she feels bad, so she scoops up the egg and brings the egg home. Okay. She puts the egg in her bed. She's going to warm it and she's going to hatch it. Okay. I saw this episode the, uh, of The Simpsons. Everything's going to be great. <laughs> you didn't see this episode of The Simpsons. The, uh, the egg doesn't hatch right away. It gets bigger. The egg grows. Mm. Like still in egg form. Until it's about, like, three feet tall. It's this gigantic, Trumpy-sized egg. And when it finally does hatch, 
I mean, it's, it's called hatching. This thing comes out, and she, uh, she names this thing Allie, and this thing is a, a monstrous crow person thing. It's, a mon- ah. it's this monster thing. Okay. Like, it's got big, huge, human size eyes, but also like this big freaky beak, but also has like human skin. Practical but also, CGI? Like, practical. Does it look cool? It, it looks pretty cool. It's, nice. it's, it's, it's pretty freaky looking. And also it has like psychic ET linking powers to her. So when one, one of them gets injured, it, both of them feel it. So it's this weird sort of like doppelganger creature thing. And it starts to grow and change and look more like her her as time passes it becomes this weird kind of doppelganger uh this uh kind of animal spirit of hers Mm -hmm. okay that uh sort of is manifesting her a lot a lot more of her intense emotions what the teenage girl is going through at the time is her mother calls her aside her like mother that she's trying to emulate this kind of like perfect family woman and says i have a confession to make i'm in love i have a secret boyfriend on the side that's like handsome uh, carpenter dude and I'd like you to br- I'd like to bring you around to meet this guy and let let me let you know how much I'm in love with this man the husband doesn't know about this she's just sort of having this affair and is trying to get her mm. teenage daughter to sort of be cool with all of this okay which is put, as you can imagine putting a lot of strain on her and making yeah. her feel really awful about her mother it's weird that's yeah it's really kind of strange in a family dynamic sort of yeah way. it's it's asking a lot um, um Hatching has the same plot and themes as Turning Red, which is about oh. an oppressive mother uh, sort of putting a lot of pressure on a teenage girl who now has this sort of spirit guide to uh, the sort of spirit animal form, essentially, to uh, guide her through and let her manifest her emotions in, in a little bit more of a direct fashion. Turning Red is a delightful family movie about a, a young girl who turns into a big red panda and she's big and cuddly and she wants to raise money and go to see a boy so band. So cute. Uh, this crow monster is fucking disturbing. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it bleeds. It's constantly drooling and, like, giving off bird glop of some kind. It's really kind of... <laughs> like, you almost smell this thing. It smells like a chicken coop. It's really awful. Uh, the fact that the bird monster itself is so scary is a good reason why this movie works. Uh, the themes are actually pretty easy to suss out. It's not terribly sophisticated, but it's scary, and that's the important thing. Uh, and um, I, I appreciate it, uh, like, by the end, it sort of starts to take a few unexpected turns when uh, a big part of the movie is uh, the girl's trying to keep the bird secret. She's trying to keep it in the house. It's, like, Trumpy in that regard. I'm going to, like, sneaking food back to the room. We're talking about the movie Pod People, by the way. I think people know who Trumpy is. I, what, just in case you don't. Trumpy, Trumpy that, is that like could be a loaded Skywalker phrase. or Dracula. Okay. Every kid knows who Freddy is. <laughs> it's like Santa Claus or King Kong. I don't Kong. think Trumpy quite has the market penetration of Freddy Krueger, but okay. <laughs> just you wait. Watch when, the MST3 episode they, Pod People. It's one of the best episodes. There when, you go. When they make Trumpy an origin story. Oh, God, Trump, Trumpy, God, the, no. Trumpy the college years. Whatever oh, they're going to get to. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I made all these comparisons to pod people. It's okay. Uh, 
Pop People was an E.T. knockoff, and I already compared it to E.T., so it's, it's somewhat apt, right? It, no, no, I, I'm not saying it's not apt. I just, I feel like you're, sometimes you and I have a tendency to throw out references all willy-nilly, yeah. and sometimes we have to remember that not everybody not has really, seen okay. that right. one episode of that show that got canceled right. in the 90s. Um, that we so... <laughs> maybe, okay, so... maybe, maybe a, a helping hand bring people uh, along this journey with us. In the early 80s, uh, I think it was a Spanish production company, um, mm. made a film, um, it was so one one Pierre Simon was yeah. uh, Simon was the name of the, the filmmaker, yeah. and he made a knockoff of ET. It was it's supposed to be a horror movie about aliens mm-hmm. killing people, but ET had just come out and was really so popular. They, yeah, they made it so of, they changed it so it was a little bit more magical and friendly. Yeah, so and a alien little, befriends a, a child while it's killing fi- people. Finds an egg and warms it in his bed, and I, this little thing hatches out. And it's got this elephant snout and a furry body, and, and it's it does magic stuff. Suit, makes yeah. his toys play in the mm-hmm. without anyone touching them. It's Good. stupid as shit. The, the little boy <laughs> is dubbed by what well, sounds like an adult woman. So he has a really strange Probably, voice. Yeah. Like, Trumpy, you can do magic things. Um, that's that's what I'm alluding to when I talk about Trumpy, because he names this thing Trumpy. It's ridiculous. It's an amazing movie. It's an amazing yeah. uh, episode of Mr. Science Theater. Uh, but yeah, Hatching also has the egg, also has a Trumpy, but Trump, imagine if Trumpy was, like, truly disturbing. Nice. And actually, it goes to sort of the, this teenage girl's, like, inner emotional state. And I think there's actually a really good uh, message going on here about sort of the two selves we live as adolescents sort of a lot of new emotions are coming in. We start feeling things a lot more intensely. We have things like jealousy and rage and and in ways we didn't have when we were uh, younger children. And this is a good metaphor for that. I feel like uh, it's it's just really, really well put together. It's a good horror movie. All right. Well, I I didn't see it, so I have nothing to comment, Mm. but sounds good. Uh, Let's review our movies on the critically acclaimed scale. Once again, for those who do not know, or maybe are new, the critically acclaimed scale uh, runs from C- to C+. The lowest a movie can get is a C-. That's below average. That's just this is not very good, that is. Mm-hmm. Uh, C is average. Some good, some bad. Maybe some audiences will like it more than others. It's, it's average. It's a C. And then a C- is above average. That's the highest you can get. That's everything from we just like this movie to uh, we think this is the best movie ever made. Anything in that range. Boom. C+. And on that note, Whitney Seibold, mm-hmm. what do you give... Hatching. I, uh, you know what? I can't, I can't find fault with this. I'll give it a C plus. Nice. It's just good. It's, it is scary. I like okay. the monster. I, I like the actors. Good, good stuff going in there. Rock solid. Nicely done. Okay, Pompo the cinephile. Um, I like it. I'm not quite sure I can bring myself to give it a full C plus because I feel like it's made for like a very specific audience. Yeah. yeah. And and even then, it's a little bit of a trifle. But um, I appreciate that it is made for cinephiles. And has some thoughts about actual filmmaking other than it's neat. Uh, so I'm going to give it a high C. A very, very high C. I just don't, okay. I don't think it's a must-see or nothing. But I think if it's everything I said makes it sound like it would appeal to you, worth checking out. But if not, you're not going to miss much. Uh, the Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. Uh, that's a C. Uh, okay. it's, it's a little... T- it's way too lightweight to be anything beyond. Nice. All right. And uh, lastly, The Northman. Mm. While I admire the artistry of this a lot, and mm. some of the performances are really, really good, um, uh, uh, Robert Eggers has worked with the same cinematographer on all three of his movies so far. It's um, a good-looking movie, and, no and, denying. Uh, yeah. And he was uh, Yaren Peshki, I think is his name, uh, got an Academy Award nomination for The Lighthouse. And deservedly so. And deserve, yeah, some of the best photogra- photography you'll ever see is in The Lighthouse. 
Uh, so I like the look of this movie. I like sort of the, the richness mm-hmm. and the textures of it, all of the visual stuff. But ultimately, it's very dissatisfying. It's all of, for all the reasons we talked about. It's just not really delving into the story in a way that makes you see why all of that artistry was necessary. So I, I very reluctantly give it a C minus. Yeah, yeah, I'm kind of with you on this. I'm gonna I'm gonna give it a very low C. Okay, I'm gonna give it a very low C. I think there's it's not like it's not like I would tell anyone to avoid it or anything like yeah. that. It's definitely, but it's it's actual greatness never seems to match the grandeur of the presentation. Hmm. It's being presented as though it's this incredible, and, and there's history here, I get it, but there's not enough to it to really justify just how portentous, just how gigantic mm-hmm. uh, it feels, actually feels pretty insubstantial in the long run. But again, nicely photographed, there's some cool mm-hmm. stuff in here, it's not a oh, total wash. We didn't even talk about the ghost fight. Oh, there's a ghost. There's a ghost fight. Yeah, there's. there's we also there's like a, a straight up supernatural sequence. We also didn't talk about how uh, the guy who stars in The Northman as the Northman, mm-hmm. Alexander Skarsgård, uh, starred in the TV series True Blood as a character named Eric Northman. Did he really? Yeah, I never saw True Blood. It's, it's not that great. I mean, the first couple yeah. seasons were interesting, and I kind of. I mean, it, off. if you're gonna have a movie about sort of uh, national pride, yeah. I mean, there aren't too many. Icelandic movies with like big American money. So that uh, can be, aware of. That, yeah, that, that can be admirable. Um, sure. I feel like Vikings have, have only been cracked once in cinema. There aren't a lot of great Viking features. What's the one you're thinking of? How to train your dragon Two. Yeah, that's is, a great one. Even though they're for some reason Scottish, I don't understand. They're, that at all. they're Vikings, but yeah, and they have yeah. like silly names like hiccup and yeah. egg fart. I forgot what their names are, but they have, <laughs> they have silly names. And yeah. um, I'm actually, uh, I'm uh, but actually, but know. it's actually like a warm movie about like family and togetherness. Mm. It features it features a disabled hero, which is really mm. rare in a lot of uh, a lot of movies. Mm. And uh, yeah, that movie actually like seems to understand a little bit more like the togetherness of the clan that you get from a lot of like Icelandic the, national epics. The movie I've heard like Njal's saga the, and that I, kind of thing. I actually think the first mm. how, the first two How to Train Your Dragons are great. I think the third one's fine. I just don't think mm. it's quite up to the. I think the, the, the second's the best. But, Agreed. Yeah. Um, but uh, the movie I kept wanting to watch while I was watching The Northman, mm. and I haven't seen this movie in years, and something tells me it won't hold up very good for probably some very offensive jokes, uh, was Eric the Viking, Which starring Tim Robbins. Also not very good. Uh, no, no, no. But like, it's it's a parody of Vikings. Which is weird because it wasn't like a genre that everyone was like sort of rolling their eyes at. Oh, another Viking movie. Mm. How rife for parody. Well, it, I think it was like, um, you know, they were taking the Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Yeah. Uh, there wasn't like an Arthur movie that they were necessarily sending up. Not specifically, but, they were, they were but drawing, sort of general it's, idea. It's, it's an yeah. English film and they were drawing on an English national myth. So yeah. that made a little bit more sense. What were they getting at with the Vikings? Like, I, don't, I don't understand like why they thought the Vikings was Vikings were particularly rife for satire. But there's some funny stuff in that movie. I like uh, the guys who uh, the guy who's a berserker, but his father was a berserker, and his father just like looks down at his son's berserking. It's That's like, like yeah, you'll never be berserk. a real berserk. Ah! No, see, you're wasting it now. <laughs> now you don't want to do it now. This is why you're a terrible berserk. There's, Father! It, it, it opens with a really horrible uh, no. 
no, it's, it's, it's pe- terrible. Very, very bad taste joke about yeah. sexual assault. And uh, no, 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 that that part's awful. But there is, yeah. Although I do appreciate there's a, a one of the characters in uh, in Eric the Viking as a Christian character. Yeah, he's, he doesn't believe in the Norse gods. Yeah, he's uh, come and, to the he's come to the north in order to uh, spread the Christian uh, gospel. And uh, a big part of that movie is they're trying to magically find Valhalla. They're trying to find yeah. the Viking afterworld, and they get there. And it's like, well, what, don't you believe in Valhalla now? And he can't see any of it because he yeah. doesn't believe any of it. He and just everyone else through walls. And everyone stuff. else, they can't get into Valhalla because they found it like in a ship. They didn't mm. die in oh. battle, which is how you get into Valhalla. So they're not allowed in. But he doesn't believe in it, so he just walks through the wall. Mm. <laughs> just and they meet Thor and Odin, but they're not played by the actors. You think I won't no. spoil Eric the Viking, even though it's kind of a shitty movie. It's kind um, of sh- there's a couple of good bits in it. There's a couple of good bits in it. There's a couple of good bits in it. There's also some stuff that I'm sure is aged very, very badly. I think Terry Jones wrote it. Uh, I think didn't he direct it though? Right, Eric the Viking. That was Terry Jones directing. Yeah, surely it it was. Let me let me look that up because I I forgot who. I'm pretty sure that was Terry Jones. I know he's in it. So it's John Cleese. Yeah. Yeah. No, ninety percent sure that was Terry Jones. Yeah, written and directed by Terry Jones. All right. All right. Got it. Nailed it in one. And, and and he's in it as well. He plays a, uh, an Atlantean, and yeah. Atlantis sinks in the course of the movie. Yeah. Uh, and of course, kind of no, no, nobody move. This is not happening. Yeah, they're, they're in <laughs> denial that it's that it's sinking. <laughs> they're like literally trying to explain why Atlantis is not sinking while they're drowning. <laughs> while they're... <laughs> I don't know everything. Everything's going to work out. Anyway, that is it for Critically Acclaimed this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll be back next week with a review of the new Doctor Strange and other things as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're also, uh, uh, we'll be back with more podcasts throughout the week. As I said, I'm back from vacation time to get back on the old horse. Uh, not the, the, the podcast, not an actual horse and definitely not heroin. I do not approve the Dr. Strange horse. Yes. Um, but, um, yeah, we got all that kind of stuff going here. Uh, we've got uh, a bit of an update coming to the Patreon page, changing a few things around in there. We're going to actually be having some, uh, uh, a couple times a month, we're going to be having trivia nights with our top tier patrons. Mm-hmm. So if you want to play uh, various trivia games with me and or Whitney, uh, stop on by. It's a great way to do that. Um, yeah, that's patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. If you want to talk about anything we discussed on this podcast, well, gosh darn it, there's a way to do that. You can email us. Our email address is letters at critically acclaimed.net. We might read your email in an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail. Whitney, what is our P.O. box for yes. people who prefer snail mail? Send us an actual physical letter to uh, send us a missive written on an <laughs> animal's skin wrapped in the hair of your greatest enemy. Uh, send it to Please P.O. Don't. box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Yeah, and uh, once again, I want to remind everybody uh, that uh, the there is a new book with an actual uh, uh, new story from M. Lopez da Silva, and uh, the, mm. the 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 proceeds go to a very very good cause uh, to help trans kids mm. in Texas, where they're trying to legislate them out of existence. Mm. Uh, the book is called "Your Body Is Not Your Body." Uh, it is a queer horror anthology uh, with a lot of really talented people behind it. You can find it on Amazon. You can buy uh, eBooks. There's print copies available as well. It's mm. from Tenebrous. Press T E N E B R O U S. Uh, any any support you can give would be very supportive, mm. very helpful, and uh, we hope you enjoy the book, and we hope you enjoy M. Lopez's story because I happen to think it's great. Uh, we're on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And until next time, never forget, everyone's a critic. I wanna go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what? 
What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.